I would invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 21. We'll be looking at the first 11 verses of that chapter together this evening. But before reading from God's Word, let's go to the Lord in prayer together as we acknowledge our dependence upon Him and need for understanding of His Word of truth. Our Lord, we love Your Word and ask that You would work an ever-increasing love for it. We are in awe that You would make us Your servants and pray that we would delight evermore in the loving and tender rule of our faithful Master over us. And what delight that we have been made the Bride of Christ. May we, in response to that wonderful work of sovereign grace and salvation that is ours, long to walk in increased holiness of life. In the name of Christ and for His sake we pray, amen. Stand with me, if you will, for the reading of God's Word. Now, these are the rules that you shall set before them. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh he shall go out free for nothing. If he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters, and he shall go out alone. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free, then his master shall bring him to God, and he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost. And his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall be a slave forever. When a man sells his daughter as a slave, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. If she does not please her master, who has designated her for himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. He shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people, since he has broken faith with her. If he designates her for his son, he shall deal with her as with a daughter." If he takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, or her marital rights. And if he does not do these three things for her, she shall go out for nothing without payments of money. The word of our God, you may be seated. Well, let's remember in our studies through the book of Exodus that we're in this section that can be labeled as the book of the covenant. That starts in chapter 20, verse 22 and runs through the end of Exodus chapter 23. Now, it's best to think of the book of the covenant as application of the Ten Commandments to the children of Israel. It's taking the general framework of the law of God in the Decalogue, and it's applying it to the people of God as they prepare to enter into the land of promise. They are a redeemed people who belong to the Lord God, And they need to learn that all of life should be shaped and directed and informed by the law of the Lord. Now, as you read through the book of the covenant, there's a lot that seems foreign and far removed from our cultural context, a lot that seems archaic, outdated, and irrelevant. But as we move along in this series of studies through this particular portion of Exodus, What I hope that we'll find is that there's actually much for us to learn. There's much for us to learn, for example, about the nature of God, how He deals with His people, how He cares for them, and how He continues to care for us. There's much for us to learn about His law, how His law should be applied to our own lives as we live as His children in relationship with Him. Now, tonight we come to a particularly difficult passage of Scripture 
We might be tempted to just skip over it a bit. Pastor Jeff, this is a great time to move along this series of Exodus. But our commitment at Covenant is to Lectio Continua preaching. And that means that we take the next passage of Scripture as it comes to us. So even when we get to a difficult passage like this, it's good for us to wrestle through such texts and to see how we can actually apply these things to our own lives. Now, in order for us to better understand what's being taught here in Exodus chapter 21, we need to lay some groundwork or some preliminary principles in order to understand the historical circumstances in which these ordinances were given. And so our first point this evening is just that, laying some preliminary principles. And one principle that we learn here is that the law of God should be applied to all of life. And so in these very detailed instructions through these chapters of Exodus, the children of Israel are learning how life should be lived under the loving authority of the Lord. And of course, that's a lesson that remains for us as God's people. All of life should be lived under the authority of God. I find it interesting that archaeologists have uncovered other ancient code books from the Near East dating to this particular period of history. But the laws that we find here in the Book of the Covenant for the children of Israel are unique in several ways. They're unique, first of all, in terms of their reference points. Of course, codes and laws from other pagan nations are not going to have the Lord God in mind in terms of how the people should live and obey. And they're unique in the way in which these laws care for the weak and vulnerable, like the women and poor that we'll see more tonight. Now, as much as these laws are given to help the society of Israel function properly, we shouldn't think of these as just civil laws for this particular point of history with no ongoing relevance. But these are laws given to God's people, again, to help them learn how to live in reference to God under His loving domain and authority. And so that's the first preliminary principle. And another principle that's helpful, I think, to keep in mind is that the instruction that we find in the book of the covenant is not exhaustive. Now, it might seem like there's a lot of detail as we work our way through these various regulations in the book of the covenant, but no society could ever create enough laws to address every possible human scenario that we might face. And that's partly because human nature is gifted at finding a loophole as soon as a law is created. And so even when we're talking about things like slavery, how to live in families, how to deal with daughters and all the rest, even these laws are given to just provide general guidelines, guidelines to the leaders and to the elders within each community as they work to try to help the people understand what it looks like to live their lives for the glory of God. And so when the Lord says to Moses in verse 1, remember this is still a conversation that's happening between God and Moses on Mount Sinai, He says to Moses, these are the rules to set before them. That word could also be understood as ordinances or general or guiding principles. And sometimes we need help, even in our own lives, to learn how to take the general principles of God's law and apply it to our own lives as disciples of Jesus. I like how Philip Ryken comments on this point. He says, our children need help to learn how to live for the glory of God when they're bickering over a toy. 
We need help to learn how to live for the glory of God when our jobs are stressful or when our bosses are unreasonable. We need help to learn how to honor the Lord when our spouse lets us down or when our neighbor damages a tool that they borrow from us. And so God's Word, you see, is extremely relevant for daily living. And what the Book of the Covenant helps us to learn is that at every point in life, we are either living for the Lord God or we're living for something else or someone else, namely for ourselves and our own desires. Greg Beale puts it very plainly like this, any thought that we do not subject to the rule of Christ is an idolatrous thought. And we could add to that, any longing, any behavior, any word, any response to a trial that is not subject to the rule of Christ is idolatrous in nature. Now, one final preliminary principle that I think is worth talking about for a few moments is how we should understand the Bible's teaching on slavery. Now, of course, there have been many throughout church history who have used a text like this one and others to try to justify slavery. But I think that you'll see as we look more closely at these verses tonight that what we're talking about here in God's Word is something that is much different than the type of chattel slavery that probably comes to mind for us when we think of our own history of slavery in America. Now, we might hear a passage like this from the Bible that talks about slavery, and we might feel a little bit embarrassed by it. Maybe we should just skip over this in our own year through the Bible reading plan. Or if you're in college, you might think to yourself, man, I hope my professor doesn't know about this passage and bring it up in class. I don't have any idea how I would answer. And if I disregard what's taught here, if I disagree with this part of Scripture, then what does that mean for other problematic portions of Scripture that seem to be outdated or irrelevant? Does that make me then the one who determines what's accepted or rejected about God's Word? And so here I think is an important conviction for us to develop when we think about studying the Bible. Since this is God's Word, that's our presupposition, and it is authoritative and true in all of its ways. So it may be difficult for us to understand God's Word at different points, but I need to allow God's Word to speak on its own terms on its own authority. I do not want to take some modern Western paradigm and impose that upon the reading of Scripture. And so for us, living in a country, the country that we do, at this particular time of history, we have all been conditioned to think of a particular type of slavery in which men and women were ripped from their homes, forced across the Atlantic, sold into slavery, and treated as nothing more than property. Families were torn apart, and abuse happens in all sorts of horrific ways. But as much as those images might come to mind for us, as much as we might be looking at this passage through that grid or through those lenses, the reality is we're talking about something that is much different for the children of Israel at this particular point of history than we are our own American history of slavery. Now, we know that because the text itself tells us as much. Just look down to verse 16 of this chapter, Exodus 21. Whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. Deuteronomy 24, which adds more to this, says something very similar. Deuteronomy 24, 7, if a man is found stealing one of his brothers of the people of Israel, and if he treats him as a slave or sells him, 
then that thief shall die. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. And so this type of man-stealing is strictly forbidden and would result in the execution of the one who would take another from his own people and seek to sell him. And the reason why man-stealing is so wicked among the children of Israel is because they, of course, were brought out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, out of slavery. Pharaoh treated them as property, but it would be reprehensible for the people of Israel to treat one another the way in which he treated them as nothing more than disposable property. And so, again, the point here is that you simply cannot use the Bible to justify the American institution of slavery or anything that resembles it. And so, if that is not what's being taught here, then what is being taught to us here in chapter 21? Well, that's our second point this evening, regulations for male servitude. And we see these regulations for male servitude in verses 1 through 4. Now, we would be wise to recognize that history is complex and that every nation at every time of history would have their own social and economic factors that would create disparities among varying people groups and individual families. That's just part of life. Even today, we recognize that every society in the world has different socioeconomic factors that contribute to varying degrees of wealth and prosperity. And so, as we try to sort of transport ourselves back 3,500 years to the ancient Near East, we would find ourselves, of course, in a much different world than we see in the world around us today. It's a land of instability. It's a land of great hostility in which the weak and vulnerable could be taken advantage of and abused. And so, what God is allowing for here in these verses is more of what we would call indentured servitude. Now, we know it's indentured servitude because there's a limitation to how long someone could be considered a slave. Namely, after six years, he shall go free. You can hold your spot here and turn with me, if you will, to Deuteronomy chapter 15. We read in Deuteronomy 15 a little bit more expansion of this particular regulation that's laid out for us here in Exodus 21. Deuteronomy 15 verse 12 reads, if your brother, a Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman is sold to you, he shall serve you six years. And in the seventh year, you shall let him go free from you. And when you let him go free from you, you shall not let him go empty handed. You shall furnish him liberally out of your flock out of your threshing floor, out of your wine press. As the Lord your God has blessed you, you shall give to him. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore, I command you this today. And so notice here in Deuteronomy 15 that when his time of servitude is over and when he goes free, he is not to be sent out empty-handed but he is to be given the basics of life in order to start over again. And the reason for this is captured clearly there in verse 15. Remember who you once were as slaves in the land of Egypt. And if you were slaves, of course, you had nothing. So anything that you now have is clearly a gift from the Lord. And if you were in the position of being able to be a master of a household and even have servants come to you, that's evidence of God's kindness to you. 
And so you should be willing to share out of that abundance with those who serve within your household. And when that servant finishes those six years of service and goes out on his own, you shall help equip him for that life of independence. Now think for a moment about some of the benefits of this type of servitude. There's benefits both for the master and there's benefits for the slave. The master is getting additional labor to help him in the person of this servant. You can imagine, think of it like this. Many of you have lawn care services, pest control services. You call the AC repairman when your air conditioning breaks or the plumber when you have issues. It takes a lot to keep a household going. In the ancient Near East, there would be no such amenities like that. Things would have to be tended to themselves. In a larger household, a large estate, a master might need several servants to simply help him keep things moving within his household. And so there's great benefit to the master in having faithful servants. And the servant benefits as he is taken care of, as he learns valuable skills, as he observes a functioning family in the covenant community as he matures himself and learns to be responsible. And so there's benefit to both parties. Now, clearly, this is not a relationship of power or ownership of one person over another. But the master is to have compassion on the servant because he is a fellow Israelite. Now, we might wonder, well, what would be some reasons why someone could find himself in a position of indentured servitude in the first place? Well, it could be a situation of great economic hardship and debt, and this is the only way for him to survive or to provide for a family. This is not a time in history in which he can refinance or go out and get a second home equity loan or something along those lines. There's no low-interest credit cards that he could apply for to stock up on groceries, and he's certainly not looking to a government aid program to help him. But one thing that he does have access to is help from the covenant community, help from his fellow Israelites. And so maybe it's a man who finds himself making unwise financial decisions and reaping the consequences of those things. Maybe it's a seasonal drought that has destroyed his crops, and he has no other assets or no other skill set to be able to provide for a family or for himself. Whatever it may have been, it's important for us to see that he enters into this relationship of servitude voluntarily. No one forces him to do this, but circumstances are such in a fallen world that he finds it necessary for his own survival to indenture himself to another. Now, notice that there is also some provision here for marriage or whatever situation the servant finds himself in. If he comes in single, he is to go out single. If he comes in married, he is to leave married. There's the sanctity of the marriage relationship. There's the importance of individual families remaining intact within the covenant community. Now, so far, these first three verses make a lot of sense. There doesn't seem to be a lot of controversy here. But then we get to verse 4. And at first glance, verse 4 might seem to be a little cruel. Look there again. If his master gives him a wife, and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters, and he shall go out alone. Now, notice here that the law envisions a scenario in which the master gives to his servant a wife, and they have a family together. And as his six years of servitude expire, he goes out free, but they are to remain behind. 
Now, what exactly is going on here? Doesn't this contradict what we've been saying so far about some of the benefits that come to the indentured servant? Well, you can think of it like this. From one perspective, this could actually be a way to protect the woman and her children. What if this man was an indentured servant because of poor financial decisions? How do we know he's not just going to return to that same pattern of living and put his new wife and children in a difficult situation and cause them to suffer? And so by her remaining in servitude, the husband is given an opportunity to establish himself before she and the children come to join him. You see, if the wife is given to him, and we could envision a situation like this in which she's probably a servant herself, the terms of service apply to her as well. It's not as though she is a servant for life, and so perhaps this is just some overlap in terms of their servitude. He's been serving for several years in that six-year period. This woman is brought in, given to him as a wife. His six years are up, but she still has a few years to remain to pay her debt. It's not a debt that just goes away, but has to be addressed in terms of service on her part. Now, we also know from other parts of God's law that there's provision for someone to pay down another person's debt. We read this in Leviticus 25. And so it's possible that her freed husband could be motivated to help pay down the debt that she owes, that she might be freed sooner than that six-year period. And so these are some regulations for servitude. As you can see, these are still guidelines and principles, even though there's much detail here for us. Not exhaustive, but this could be a way to help the elders of the community to draw upon God's Word as they help one another learn to live all of life for the glory of God. And so that first section really addresses male slaves or servants. We'll come back to verses 5 and 6 in a few minutes, but let's look down to the second section the next section, rather, in verses 7 through 11, to see what we learn here about female slaves or maidservants. And so, this is our third point this evening, and we might call this regulations for female servitude. Once again, the instructions here might seem to contradict the principles that we just talked about. Why is a father allowed to sell his daughter into slavery? Doesn't this just reinforce the heavy-handed patriarchy that many people accuse the Bible of advocating. Why don't we read about the female servants going free just like we did the male servants? But once again, the cultural context is extremely important for us to look at other scriptural texts to help us understand what's being taught here. Now, first of all, the father is not trying to get rid of his daughter because she's troublesome. He's not trying to profit off of her by selling her. This is strictly forbidden. We saw that in verse 16. But he's actually trying to improve her prospects in life. You see, this is a culture in which there are arranged marriages. And so what we read here is more of a form of arranged marriage than something that resembles the type of slavery that might come to mind for us. And so you could think of how a poor man might send his daughter to live in a more well-to-do household in order to try to improve her life. If she is young, there would be some sort of arrangement in which she would grow up and marry the master's son. If she's a little bit older and more advanced in life, she might be betrothed to the master himself. And so this is more of an engagement period for the master to decide on marriage, either marriage for himself or for his son. 
But notice how there are actually several protections in the text that are established for the young woman. Look again at verse 8. If she does not please her master who has designated her for himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. He shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people since he has broken faith with her. And so here in verse 8, the young woman comes into his household in order to enter into marriage, either with his son or with the master. But before marriage occurs, something happens in which he is displeased with her in some way. She cannot be sold, that's in violation of the law of the Lord, but she can be redeemed. Now, the big question here might be, why is he displeased with her? Now, of course, it could be something that she has done. It could be that she's deceptive, that she has betrayed trust in some way of her master, or it could be there is some fickle reason within the master himself that is nothing within her but a problem that he has in his own heart. And you can imagine it would be difficult for the elders of the city to determine who is actually to blame here, and that's why the law is clear. He has broken faith with her. She is not the one in the wrong. By taking her into his household, there was an agreement that she would be married to his son or to himself. But even if she does not please him, the fault is not with her in the sense of her being rejected, but he is the one who is in the wrong. He is the one who has broken faith. And you can see how this is protection for the woman. And here's another protection for her that we read in verse 9. If he designates her for his son, he shall deal with her as with a daughter. And so if she comes into this household betrothed to his son, perhaps both of them are young children. You might think of a household, a large property in which there are smaller homes for different people to live together on the same property. This would be part of the culturally appropriate arranged marriage. But the master is to treat her as though she is his daughter. This is a type of adoption, and she would have privileges in the family. And when she marries the son, then she would have the full rights of the privileges of the household. And you can see from a situation like this how a father would be looking to improve her status. And there's one more protection for her that we read in verses 10 and 11. If he takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish her food, clothing, or marital rights. If he does not do these three things for her, she shall go out for nothing without payment of money. And so whether there is an engagement that is broken off, whether it is a marriage that ends in divorce, or whether it's a situation in which the master engages in a polygamous relationship, he is required to provide for her basic needs, her basic necessities. And if he does not do these things, she is free to depart. There is no one who has to pay for her to redeem her. And so what we learn here in all of this is that God cares deeply about His children. The fall has warped relationships in all sorts of sinful and selfish ways. And it seems like every culture, and very much our own as well, belittles women, treats women cruelly, and uses them as though they are nothing more than objects to be consumed and discarded. And so it really is important to understand 
how radical this teaching is as the Lord directs His people to protect and care for women who could be so easily taken advantage of and abused. And even today, we would say that it is right and it is appropriate and expected that a husband would provide the basic necessities for his wife, giving to her what she needs for daily living, protecting her, caring for her, loving her. Failing to do these things is a shameful and wicked violation of the law of God. So that leads us to come back to verses 5 and 6, and it's here that we find another scenario in which the servant may wish to stay in the household of his master. So this is our fourth point this evening, remaining a servant for life. Now, the important point to note here is that the slave wishes to remain in his master's household because he is motivated by love, love for his master love for his wife, and love for his children, love for the household. The master is not coercing him, forcing him to remain within his household. You can picture a scene in which they would need to go before the elders of the city so that they can determine and bear witness to the slave's willingness to remain. And there needs to be this public ceremony in which the master takes an awl or some type of metal spike and it is bored through the earlobe using the door frame or the door of the house as a backstop. Now, what's happening here in this ritual? Why the ear and why the door or the doorpost? Well, I think it's important to point out again that it is love for the master that is motivating him. I mean, what kind of master would be so good to his servant that he would want to remain a part of that household for the rest of his life. I mean, this is pretty remarkable when you think about it. Rather than go free, and rather than be giving those basic necessities to start life over, which he has every right to do after that six-year period, he wants to remain under the care and the provision and the protection and the authority of his master. Such love and such kindness has been shown to him that he wants to remain in this household all of his days for the rest of his life. And I think it's the ear that receives this permanent mark because that would be an extremely visible part of the slave's body. Every time he goes out to the market, every time he conducts business on behalf of the master, everyone in the city would know that he belongs to another that he is conducting business as a representative of his master. And it wouldn't be so much that this reflects well upon the servant himself, but it would reflect well upon the master. They would look at this man who has this all in his ear and know that he belongs to another. In a close-knit community, they would know who the master was over this particular slave and would be in awe at the loving kindness of that master as this act bears testimony to the provision and care of another over him. And I think it's the ear because that's the organ, of course, through which the servant would hear the voice of his master. And so with this permanent indicator on his body, he shows his willingness to listen and to listen only to the voice of his master for the rest of his life. This sounds very much like the calling to Christian discipleship, doesn't it? Our master 
the Lord Jesus has been so tender to us in saving us from death and condemnation that we long to respond in loving devotion to Him, taking our identity as a follower of Christ everywhere we go, living joyfully under His rule and reign forever. So what are we to make of this ritual with the earlobe and the awl and the doorpost and so forth? What is, what is happening here in this ritual? Well, it would, of course, signify his bond to that particular household. This is where his loyalty lies. This is where his devotion is given. This is his home. This is where he is cared for. This is where he is protected. Now, this may be a big surprise to you, but I've never had my ears pierced. I'm sure there's a little pain involved, but probably more so if it's a piece of metal that's jabbed into your earlobe. And undoubtedly, there would be a little bit of blood that would be left behind. And perhaps this is a type of covenant ritual between servant and master in which blood remains as a mark on the doorframe of the house, leaving a bit of stain on the door that every time the master and the servant himself walks in and out of the doorway, they see that mark reminding them of the calling that is theirs and the obligation that they took in this covenantal type arrangement. And of course, we can think of another covenant ritual in which blood is, pa- is placed upon the doorframe of a house. It is the blood of the Passover lamb as a substitute that protects the household from the wrath of God. Now, this ritual, of course, is no substitute for Passover, but I think there is an allusion to that covenant celebration which helps to reinforce the permanence and the exclusivity of this master-slave relationship. As you can see, there's a great deal for us to reflect upon in these few verses. But as we close, let's think about some applications that we might draw from this text. What are some of the ways in which we can find ongoing relevance from some of these principles that are laid out for us here? Let's think first of some guiding principles as you think about different relationships that you might be in with others. If you're an employer or in any position of authority over another, how are you treating those who are under your care? If you are one who employs other people, are you paying them a fair wage? seeking to help them grow in their skills and abilities, sharing of the wealth of your business enterprise, rewarding those who have been faithful and devoted to you. If you're a husband, are you caring tenderly for your wife, protecting her, providing for her, and most importantly, nurturing her in the Lord? If you're a prospective husband, are you seeking to establish maturity in your walk with the Lord? while working diligently to honor the Lord in your labor? If you're a father of young ladies, are you helping them to marry only in the Lord? And if you have young ladies who are still within your home and they are under your loving authority as head of household, are you ensuring that they never date a young man who does not profess faith and love for the Lord Jesus Christ? while also seeking to model what a godly husband should be like as you care for your wife. So there are all sorts of applications here as we think about the various relationships that we might be in with others. 
And what do we learn here about our relationship with the Lord? Well, we have in the Lord Jesus, we have a loving and tender master who calls us to cast all of our anxieties upon him because he cares for us, whose yoke is easy and whose burden is light. We have a wonderful master who has laid down his life for us to redeem us from captivity. And now, in fact, we want to bind ourselves to him forever, serving him more faithfully and loving him more deeply. In Psalm 40, the psalmist writes, as some translations capture it, my ears you have dug. Another translation of that might read, my ears you have pierced. If that's an accurate translation of that text, it seems as though the psalmist may have this particular ritual in view. Psalm 40 says that the Lord has drawn us from the pit of destruction and has set our feet upon the rock of Christ, ultimately our salvation. He has put a new song in my mouth. He has poured out wonderful kindness to us. He has pierced our ears and made us His servants for life. And so, fear the Lord. Trust in the Lord. Delight yourself in Him to do His will and long for His law to be written upon your heart. Of course, we do not love as we ought. We do not serve as faithfully as we should. We are inconsistent and unreliable servants. But we have a faithful Lord who is not only our master, but who has become servant for us, who came to do the will of His Father in heaven, who humbled Himself even to death and stooped so low to wash the feet of His disciples on the night of His betrayal who came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. And we love Him because He has first loved us. We long to hear His voice, and we long to respond in greater and greater devotion. And it's not just this master-servant relationship that we are in with the Lord Jesus, as wonderful as that is, but Scripture calls us the bride of Christ, as we are in this marital-type relationship, this bond with the Lord Jesus, who is the most faithful and true and good husband to His bride, the church. We have been betrothed to Him from eternity past. He has known us and arranged for us to be His bride before the foundations of the earth were laid. And He clothes us in His radiant garments of righteousness. He never acts selfishly, but only does that which is best for us. He never forsakes us. His love for us never fades. In fact, His love for us never grows because it is an infinite, eternal, and unchangeable love. And He demonstrates His own love for us, and that while we were yet sinners, He died for us. And so, as we contemplate the wonder of our loving Master, as we think about the faithfulness of our faithful and loving and tender bridegroom, may we long to give ourselves to Him more and more in heartfelt devotion, out of wonder for this redemption that is made ours by faith alone. Amen.